Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this hump day. It's a clear one out there as well. Beautiful blue sky. Not so clear down in the Big Bend area of Florida. Idalia has come ashore and wreaking havoc in the area. Uh, Category 3 storm, 7.45 a.m. is the way it was uh, clocked. And it's moving through Gainesville, Jacksonville, Tallahassee. Looks like the Tampa Bay area is being spared. It took a turn a bit more to the west before ultimately circling back and headed uh, toward the land there in Florida. But looks like it's mostly a rain event. I mean, there's... Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a pretty significant storm surge Yeah, that uh, one of the weather streams I was watching this morning talking about the hurricane was showing... Is it Horseshoe Beach? Had a live shot with, of the storm surge coming in until the water got up over the camera and hmm. disabled the camera. Well, you got you know that area the the uh, you got a shelf in the Gulf, and so it just elevates the surge there, just hops up on there, and it it um, it, it causes it to increase in height as it moves across the land. They were expecting a rather unprecedented storm surge. But it's moving on through. At this point, there are lots of folks. It's been downgraded, by the way, to a Cat 1, last I looked. And, uh, and of course, that's winds of sustained winds of 90 miles per hour. That's a lot of wind. But um, a lot of folks out without power to be expected. But I, overall, it, it just feels like wasn't quite as bad as predicted, that it... Um, de-intensified a bit because it was thought maybe it would be a four yeah. before it came ashore that's what because it had strengthened so quickly yeah and it got the the warm water of the gulf there i have sadly seen there is one reported fatality due to the storm okay so four to eight inches of rainfall isolated totals of up to 12 inches in the big bend area as it moves on through uh, Georgia and South Carolina, and also is going to 
have impact on eastern North Carolina. So, not as bad, I guess, as it could have been, just based on what was predicted, but still, serious storm, wreaking havoc, causing problems. And you'd have to at least be somewhat thankful that it stayed away from the more densely populated areas such as Tampa. That was where they were really concerned. But that's what's going on there on the weather front. Uh, The market right now up 10 points. It was up about 140, 50 points earlier, and it has since retreated. Now it's back up again. It's just hopping around like that old kangaroo, as you call it. The, uh, the big news, the ADP report this morning, they're the folks that track payrolls and private sector job growth cooled a bit. Actually, fairly sharply in the month of August to 177,000. That was worse than expected, and it's another deal where bad news is good news because that is stopped by investors to maybe cool the Fed's interest rate hike campaign because they see that, hey, okay, folks are slowing down here. Some other news that from the financial world is HP, Hewlett-Packard said PC sales down, and their guidance was not very rosy with respect to that. They still sell a bunch of PCs, laptops, etc. So that uh, that guidance also caused their stock to, to drop. But overall, hiring by private companies, this is the slowest pace since March. Meanwhile, the price of gas, it hadn't retreated, has it? Not at all. 381, I believe, the national average for regular. I don't see it anywhere around town where it's uh, lowest I've seen is maybe 329 for the lowest grade. Is that, that about sounds right? about right, yeah. yeah. Certainly nothing with a two-handle in front of it Oh no, that I saw not so long ago. So that's what's going on on the economic front. On the program today, it's Public Service Commissioner for the Mississippi Central District, Brent Bailey. He's coming on in the next segment. He'll discuss energy consumption and concerns that he's heard about extended power outages. And they're having some community forums, the Public Service Commission is, and he's going to discuss that. I don't know about you guys, but last month I reported what was the highest electric bill I've ever received. I just got this month's. I'm not sure exactly when my billing cutoff is. Well, it it blew that one out of the water. So that is officially the biggest one I've gotten, ever received. Don't know about you guys, but that's what I... And we feel like we're fairly frugal. I mean, I know there's a lot of folks that that cut those air conditioners down fairly low and, uh, and just deal with it. I really felt like that... We were kind of moderately controlling that, and still, it's a big old bill. You got yours yet? I mean, is yours kind of coinciding with well, that? Well, I use the the balance pay okay. thing. Where level they, billing? They level, yeah, level billing. Yeah. Where okay. Because I don't use as much in the wintertime, my bills in the summertime aren't as bad. Yeah. But, yeah, it's uh, it's still pricey. Yeah, on up there. No doubt about it. At 11.05 today, Dan Eubanks, member of the Mississippi House of Representatives, 
He represents DeSoto County. Also, we have John Armstrong, legislative liaison with the Convention of States, and that's going to be the topic today. We will discuss this Convention of States. Meanwhile, more people are concerned about Joe Biden's age. That is a, a major concern. We'll get to that later on in the program as far as him being a viable candidate. We had runoffs yesterday. Have you seen the results on those yet, folks? Well, we have six for members of the legislature. Five have been called. One is down to the wire. The five of the six races for the House were decided really before the uh, polls even closed. Uh, Voters elected the first openly LGBTQ member of the legislature, and that is in House District 66. That includes Hines County, Southwest Jackson, Terry, parts of it. Fabian Nelson defeated Roshunda Harris-Allen with 99% of the vote in. Nelson received 69% compared to Harris-Allen's 31%. And then we got, um, let's see, there's another race I'm looking for here. Yeah, 69. That is Hines County as well. Includes a lot of West Jackson. Tamara Butler-Washington defeated Patty Patterson. 63.4, 36.6 in that race. And uh, 72, that's Hines and Madison. This one, I think, is instructive. Justice Gibbs, that's J-U-S-T-I-S, Gibbs, defeated Rukia Lumumba. That is the daughter of Jackson Mayor Lumumba. And 95% of the vote in after the race was called by the AP. Gibbs received 61.3% of the vote. Lumumba, 38.7%. That's what I call a trouncing. So might that indicate a chink in the dynasty armor there of Mayor Antar, Chokwe Antar Lumumba? I don't know. Something to certainly think about. I think that was a bit of a surprise. And then there's, on the Republican side, three Republican House runoffs. The most notable is the one yet to be called. That's Representative Nick Bain. He's a pretty powerful member of the House Republican Caucus, chairs Judd B. He's been on the program, of course, many times. His race advanced to a runoff. It's it's for District 2, by the way. It's Alcorn County. Separated by just 23 votes last night. And that was uh, to the opponent that he faced, uh, Mr. Maddox. And Maddox led with about 50.3% of the vote. Bain, 49.8. Really, really close deal. We'll talk about kind of what's at play there, what what the reason is for that really close race. Coming right back with Commissioner Brent Bailey. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. 
Super Talk Mississippi. everyone it's middays we are in the element wealth studio are you thinking about or planning for a retirement do you have a plan go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let element wealth help you find your balance between income growth and guarantees welcome to the program now, the Commissioner of the Public Services for Mississippi's Central District, Brent Bailey. Commissioner, always good to see you. Good to see you too, Mr. Gerard. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. So uh, what's the latest from the Public Service Commission these days? From the Commission, well, as you as you alluded to in your previous <laughs> segment, we were listening to you as you're coming in the door there, uh, you, like many other cu- uh, customers around the state, um, experienced uh, one of the highest bills they likely have ever had. Yeah. And there's a lot of tribute to that, and that just gets flat out down to the weather. Uh, when you think the number of 100-degree days that we've had over the last month, many of them several days in a row, I think I saw something, I, you know, I can't confirm it, but saw something like 12 days straight where 100-degree temperatures plus, yep. and something like 44 out of the last 45 days were above 90. And that just adds up to uh, increase in consumption in homes and businesses. And I know uh, a lot of folks have, have been calling our office really upset when they get this latest utility bill. Um, and it just gets down. These units, these HVA systems are just working as hard as they can to keep people safe and comfortable. When they call your office, I mean, what what are they looking for? They looking for relief? They call the energy company and tell them to lower my bill. What do they want? Sometimes, you know, they call the energy company and and you know they they're just they do a check and review and and we can pull information working with the utilities a history you know six months two years three years go back and look at your average consumption and see how it flows over a twelve month period. Okay. And many times you see very similar uh, usage patterns, but over summer, spring, winter, sure. etc. Um, and a lot of that is followed by the weather. You can see where we had a mild winter, mild summer. This summer has not been really mild at all. And that has reflected in, in the usage rates and, of course, the bills that we've seen. Um, so while the kilowatt hours per month or per day on average has certainly gone up, uh, the the impact of last year's high natural gas prices has also translated into some rate impacts for this year as well. Hmm. And as we continue to chip away with that, which we've done a really good job of, I believe in the near term, very soon, we'll be able to see some relief on the rate side of that as well, hmm. uh, because we've seen natural gas prices be very moderate, less than 3 $4 a million BTU, maybe just, you know, certainly around 3 or less over the last, uh, probably say last 8, 10 months, and that's really helped keep, um, to, to yeah. make up for that spike we saw last summer 
Did of, we get up to ten year. bucks? We did. We we bumped it there right there in August of last year, the hottest time of the year. Yeah, uh, which really created a, a deficit in the fuel recovery component of our rate okay. review and uh, rate recovery aspect, which is what we've been feeling uh, for the first half of this month this year. Yeah, because I, I, I've certainly noticed that uh, my natural gas bill has actually come down from where it was and. And, uh, of course, I expect it to be a little higher during the winter when we do use the heat, because I do have natural gas-powered heat. But I have appliances and lanterns, for example, and and my water heater is natural gas. So that's fairly level throughout the year, except in the winter when we might occasionally use the heater. But Mm -hmm. I've noticed that's come down, and I Mm -hmm. suspect that's because it costs fuels down. That's correct. That's correct. And electric has, has a different lag. Yeah, uh, because the annual rate making formula rate adjustments that we do on an annual basis in Mississippi, um, some utilities and other states do it monthly, which has its pros and cons. Okay, but because we do ours annually, that gives businesses, industry, large manufacturing that certainty of understanding what that rate impact will be over a twelve month period, and, and a little certainty as well for for consumers. Uh, okay, instead of just fluctuations. What's the latest from uh, Entergy with respect to these extended power outages that we experienced when we had these series of really severe thunderstorms that swept through the state? We did back in June, um, a large number of severe systems, days apart, sometimes 24 hours apart, yeah. kept rolling through the state, and you'd stand up a set of poles, cross arms, transformer, and knock them back down the next day. And in total, they had well over 200, maybe 300,000 outage events, some individually, some multiple at the same um, location, and that added up, but I think a peak of, of like 110, 120 thousand out at one time okay and that created a lot of challenges you know you're trying to communicate with folks they did have a glitch in their system that lasted for about a day day and a half put them a little behind and trying to understand where these outages are got that resolved and then just you know then it was just really playing catch up and doing their best and bringing in resources across of course there was um, uh, impacts all across the southeast we're competing for contractors for poles for transformers yeah. uh, materials and, and we got there but in the meantime it did create a lot of discomfort and upset a lot of folks hardship for um for homeowners uh we even had a gentleman within our own office who was out for eight days so Hmm. pse staff was not (laughs) unaffected by this and and i hate that and we saw that so we did ask the we did order the energy to respond and and here in my hand is the storm report we just received last week from them so we've (laughs) been going through it and that's without appendices right there in the cover list so they they put a lot of time detail information in there and we're as staff and others we're, we're combing through it now and uh understanding uh, the challenges they had uh what it meant to consumer impacts um you know the hardships they felt how we can um plan better for these types it was an unprecedented series of storms for the month of june yeah and the consistency and the intensity of those storms are certainly unprecedented uh but understanding Going forward, uh, the planning, the preparation, the response needed, particularly the customer communication side of it, to be more proactive and engage with customers nowadays. We all have devices. We all want information at our fingertips, yep. and we want to understand how long we're going to be out so I can plan, prepare, um, and not sitting in the dark while receiving text messages say, congratulations, your power is on, or your power is on, and you says 
heads up, your power's out. Yeah. And those types of... Um, uh, well, we get accustomed to that. We do. And when, we do. and when you need it the most, of course, is when it's volatile. And yep. when it's not working, when it's volatile, that's when you... Yep. Technology you is great until um, it gets a snafu in it, and then everybody's wondering yeah. what happened. And, you, that, that's and right. particularly, when, and that's what your, your operation and response... Uh, mechanisms based on, uh, then it's then it's revert back to how we did it in the old days. Pick up the phone, yeah. write down pads, uh, runners, that kind of stuff, and understand. Yeah. yeah, but that's just that's just part of the the process, and as part of that, um, I heard you mention on the prior segment about community forums. We're yeah. going to be yeah. Tell for, me about for that. part of that process is that it is folks. You know, while we have received a ton of uh, calls, emails, etc., in response to that, and we've taken it in. There's still opportunities we want to share uh, with consum- consumers our findings and report to energy, and also just have general conversations about utility services overall hmm. and the job we're doing, the job the utilities are doing. What can be done better, what could be more efficient, and how do we ensure that rates and service remains reliable, affordable, accessible, and safe, particularly here in the Central District going forward. Information about these forums uh, on your website? We're getting it out Dates, there. Times, we just put places? out the press release for our first one, which would be in Madison okay. on September 12th at the Pine Lake Church Campus there outside okay. of Buckstadt, right. uh, beginning at 6 p.m. And uh, we're going to do a series of those, I think, over the next six, seven weeks, and we'll continue to get the information out. We'll be in, uh, I know, Jackson, Port Gibson, Vicksburg, right, so uh, Greenville, and other places. So All across your, your district. That's right. Meridian. So is, is this something unique to the Central District, or are the other commissioners doing the same thing? So I know of- other commissioners have done town halls as well. It's the first time we've had this opportunity with something we've always wanted to do. But as you remember, came in office in January, yeah. and this little thing called COVID hit in March, yeah. pretty shut down the world. We'd never had that opportunity to, to gather people together, have those conversations. So a lot of it was done in, in, in over, on on videos and Zooms and things like that. So it's 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 something we've always wanted to do, uh, but now we've had that opportunity to, to really get out there and, and and you know have a a forum to to talk about these. Will types this issues. be you? Uh, and other folks from your office that will be there? Myself. Oh, just you? Yep. Okay. Well, me and there will be other folks' office, and we're going to vote wherever we're at. Utilities will be invited as well to come in okay. and participate, and uh, we'll moderate conversations. If there's questions directed to them, we can you know, make that connection yeah. if customers need it. Yeah. Well, that's what I was answer. wondering, yeah. that uh, I know you're a smart guy, but you probably don't know everything there is to know about come this. Come on now, don't give me a little credit. <laughs> give me a little credit. Just wanted to make sure you yeah. had some uh, some help there. <laughs> we do. And just real quick, there's yeah. about 400 utility linemen from the state of Mississippi that's in Florida right now in the state of Georgia. They're okay. responding to the hurricanes. Keep them in your thoughts and prayers for safe travel there, uh, safe during their restoration. They're going to probably be there for seven days, some of them, and gotcha. taking on their journey back to Mississippi. Public Service Commissioner Brett Bailey of Mississippi's Central District. Always appreciate you coming in there, Commissioner. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's midday. Super Talk Mississippi. So we were talking about, uh, oh, we appreciate Commissioner Brent Bailey as always coming in. I think it's a good idea to uh, have these uh, town hall sort of meetings. It's good. Let uh, the folks speak to the commissioner. And, and as he said, it sounds like energy, energy company representatives will be on hand as well. And uh, perhaps they can field some of the questions. I'm sure they'll... Uh, require some of their expertise to field and to respond. But we were talking about the runoff elections held yesterday, one in particular that is of high profile, that features incumbent Representative Nick Bain, Alcorn County, believe that his opponent is named Brad Maddox, I think is... uh, Correct. And it looked like that Bain was in the lead ever so slightly. But as uh, a couple other precincts came in, then Mr. Maddox took the lead. And where it stands right now, Maddox has 50.3% of the vote and Representative Bain 498 so a 0.5% delta there, uh, very close, just a handful of votes. It's reported that there's still some outstanding affidavits, I believe, that have to be verified, 45 to be exact, that are supposed to be processed today, and five absentee affidavits, which have to be processed within five business days, and then any um, absentee ballots that arrive postmark by election day. So not many out, but necessary given how close the, the current standing is, necessary to tally those votes in the total as well to determine the outcome. That's an interesting one. So it um, it's certainly thought that the flag was a big issue in that district, that some folks felt like that Mr. Bain's stance on the flag and changing the flag was an, it was an issue that figured into the election. Hmm. Corinth Alderman Chris Wilson said that uh, he backed Mr. Maddox because Bain, Bain pardon me, voted along with a number of House and Senate Republicans to change the flag. Of course, the old flag included the Confederate battle emblem. Quote, the key thing that's hurt Nick and what started me is when they took our right to vote away on that flag. That's what current Alderman Chris Wilson stated. Quote from Mr. Wilson, the county folks are a lot more upset than the city folks are about how that flag vote was handled. Wow, that's interesting, but 
I don't know, Rhino, if we should be surprised. I think there are pockets of the state, this being one of them, where that seems to be a higher priority concern than it is in others. Is that kind of what the way you see it? This oh, is, yeah. This is one of them where you wouldn't... I don't know that there was another race. I should I can certainly say that, I think, with a high degree of confidence. Where I heard that the flag, the handling of the changing of the flag figured into the outcome of a race. But it clearly is here in this one. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, when all the absentee and affidavit votes, ballots, are counted. That will be incredibly interesting. If Mr. Bain were to lose, there are, I believe, five or six other incumbents in the legislature who also lost their primary this year. One of those, Senator Philip Moran in Hancock County, Mississippi, he was defeated. There certainly was some scandal surrounding him and his son. I don't want to get into all the details there, but that was a pretty hot news topic for a while. And I think that definitely figured into Senator Moran's defeat in the primary. There was one other incumbent that went down in the uh, runoff yesterday. Who's that? That was District 105 Republican primary runoff, uh, Dale Gooden. Oh, that's right. Yes. Lost out to Elliot Birch. What happened there? I don't know, but it was a shellacking. Elliot Birch got 75% of the vote. Wow. I actually know Mr. Gooden uh, was uh, IT director for the school district in his area, and we did some work with him. I'm a little surprised at that. Interesting. Appreciate you letting us know about that. I guess I've been focused on Representative Baines just because it's so close, you know. There was another real interesting race that I was informed about by uh, friends in... Rankin County, supervisor's race. Let me get that up for you here. This is really fascinating. This was Supervisor District 1, Republican runoff. Choices were Sid Scarborough and Michael P. Wyndham. That's exactly how it appears on the ballot. Okay, between absentee and Election Day voting, the tally, you ready for this? 1,243 votes for Mr. Scarborough, 1,243 votes for Mr. Wyndham. Exact number cast and tallied for each of the two candidates. Now, apparently there are a handful of absentee ballots. This is from the clerk's office. Still outstanding, and of course, they know how many, right? Because they they issue them. You have to request a mail-in ballot uh, if it's an absentee situation. And the affidavits are are well as well. Said there are three mailed ballots. This is what I received from the office circuit clerk there. There are three mailed ballots that could come in and be counted. Of course, they have to be postmarked. That would be yesterday on Election Day. And then they have to be in hand within five days, working days, according to our law. 
So with Monday, by the way, being a holiday, that does not count in the five days. It's not a working day. So that puts us out to next Wednesday. <laughs> so we literally got to wait for these five ballots, assuming they are mailed in. We don't even know, right? You don't have to. You can request a ballot. You don't have to fill it out, complete it, and send it in. But that's where we are in this supervisor's race. Don't know that I've ever seen that. What does our law say? Isn't it? Didn't we look that up one time? It's literally a draw and straws deal or something. Isn't that how we break the ties? Something like that, yeah. It's, I mean, it's crazy. For some reason, I want to say there are a couple different options given and the, the candidates have to agree. Like, I think you have drawing straws or flip a coin or something like that. <laughs> okay. I could be wrong. That's but crazy. For some reason, that's coming to mind. Well, I don't know that I can recall that ever occurring in our state. I mean, Just I get a baseball bat and play odd man. <laughs> exactly. Uh, rock, paper, scissors, or something like that. Well, this will be fun, though, to see how that. But right now, as it stands, they got the exact number of votes. Don't know that I've ever heard that. That is uh, really something. Ben from Madison, by the way, says he had to pay f- over 500 bucks for his electric bill this month. Mine was north of 700 this month. That's a lot, isn't it, for an electric bill? I would not be happy. Yeah, that was a bunch. I was looking back at mine, and with the level billing, the most I've paid this year is 170 something, and the least I've paid is 150 something. Okay. Because they average it over a rolling 12 month period. Yeah. But then again, I have a one bedroom apartment. Yeah. A little less to heat and cool that. But, you know, that's still a lot, though, if you think about that oh, yeah, for, for a, a one-bedroom one yeah. apartment. That's a lot. It's I mean, still I, cheaper than my old place, but my old place had horrible insulation. So it makes a difference. It didn't help at all. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's flipping a coin in Mississippi, says Darren and Jackson. We might have to look that up. I don't know why the drawing straw sticks in my head. Because uh, I think you and I came across this before. He had other votes and actions more damning than that flag. I disagree, Thomas and Greenwood. It's a shame that it will get credit if he's ousted. There's some uh, concerns about his uh, support for some criminal justice reform issues. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Dan Eubanks at 11.05. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. All right, we're back in the Element Well studio. We got some tickets to give away later on in the program today. Also, Sports Talk Mississippi is going to be live tomorrow at College Corner's new location in Oxford, off Sisk Avenue, in the Oxford Commons. Get all your game day gear for kickoff with great deals throughout the store. Your new home for your collegiate gear is College Corner. We got uh, tickets to give away later on for... Train, the band Train. All right, so we did a little research on this 
How do we break ties in elections in Mississippi? On the ceasefire text line, Wes and Amory said, we drew straws for a tied local race in Monroe County a few years back. Darren and Jackson said, I think I'm pretty sure it's flipping a coin in Mississippi. Terry says, it seems like the House of Representatives has been through this process before, drawing straws or a coin flip, if you could check that out. So Rhino has the actual statutory codification legal language, and it is, he told me on the break, it turns out it is drawing straws, but he said, leave it to the lawyers to turn the process of drawing straws into a rather lengthy paragraph, right? Tell oh, it. Yeah. Tell so the people. The, the bottom half of the paragraph making up Mississippi Code Section 23-15-605. <laughs> and I quote. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh because it's it's ridiculous that you have this much this many words just to say draw straws in the tie. But basically, the election shall be decided between the candidates having an equal number of votes by each candidate individually drawing one of two sealed containers from an opaque bag under the, under the direction of the governor and secretary of state. The containers shall consist of a straw of conspicuous length, and the candidate drawing the container with the longer of the two straws shall be declared the winner. <laughs> conspicuous length. I love that. They call it container. Right? So it's... Okay. So you got to put the straws in a <laughs> in vial the... <laughs> and then put them into an opaque bag? I guess so. <laughs> Hermetically sealed, as Johnny Carson used Which, to say. in fairness to the, the lawyers and their legalese, it makes sense because if you're the first one to go and you just have a, say for example, a brown paper bag that you have the two straws in the bottom of, whoever's the first to draw would seemingly have an advantage because unless they don't have the, the sensation of feeling in their fingers, they could reach in and possibly <laughs> figure out which one was longer before pulling it out. So I guess they put it in a container so you can't do that. <laughs> We're going to have to pull up some tape of Johnny Carson doing Karnak the Magnificent when his sidekick, Ed McMahon, would always say, <laughs> What do you say? Hermetically sealed in a mayonnaise jar on fucking Wagnall's porch. Remember that? Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. On fucking Wagnall's back porch, to be specific. We're going to have to pull that up. Pull that little Johnny Carson. Wouldn't that be cool? To, so to show up to, uh, uh, to orchestrate, <laughs> to moderate... This process show up as Karnak the Magnificent. That'd be awesome. This is crazy, but I guess that so that's possibly is going to happen in the supervisors race, unless these um, outstanding affidavits and and uh, but what what I say three I think is what's being reported, and five <laughs> possible absentee mail-in ballots. All to be in hand by next Wednesday. So we got to wait the drama, the suspense, till next Wednesday to determine who wins. I just hope they have to draw straws just for the heck of it. <laughs> I, I might have to attend. What does it say? The governor oversees, right? The, oh, go yeah. the governor. Under the direction of the governor and secretary of state. <laughs> okay. That, we got to go down there with a camera for this one. 
Gentlemen, here. <laughs> this is great. Uh, where do they do it, I wonder? Uh, and this is a supervisor's race. I don't know. Where we, uh, doesn't specify, does it, where this is to take place? Maybe it, both candidates have to agree on the venue, on the location, right? <laughs> I think they ought to just go down there to the neutral ground underneath the statue, really get everybody all riled up in Brandon, folks, if you're familiar with that. I believe there is a uh, Civil War soldier atop the pedestal there right as uh, you enter downtown Brandon. Yeah, that'd be cool. This is something, man. Yeah, what do we got here? Let's all go have a party at a tailgate and everything for the old straw drawing. you got to have something to build up the drama, though. It doesn't oh, take yeah, you got to have a megaphone, get some chants going, long straw, long straw, long straw, long straw. Well, I think maybe this would start something. We ought to just convert to sortition to determine our elected officials. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. Representative Dan Eubanks is next. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. Hour two of the program is live from the Element Well studio on this hump day. Little hurricane update, Rhino. Looks like the eye of Adalia is crossing now into southern Georgia. So I guess we'll start getting more reports of the damage as it swept through the Big Bend area of Florida. Joining us now is uh, Representative Dan Banks. He, of course, serves District Dan Eubanks, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it happens to all of us. It is oh, hump gosh. day, so we... we uh, serves District 25. I hadn't known Dan before about 10, 12 years here. So uh, Also, John Armstrong, legislative liaison with the Convention of States, and that's kind of our topic today. Representative Eubanks, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in, and, and you too as well, Mr. Thank Armstrong. You. So the Convention of States, um, when I saw this on, on the... Uh, on the lineup for today, the first thing I thought about, and I had to go look it up here a minute ago, I remember writing an article about this uh, that was published in the Clarion Ledger here, the big Jackson City of Jackson newspaper. I just looked it up. It was March 2019. Wow. And That was it, right after we joined the call, probably. Exactly. It was yeah. the day of. The article published the day you guys uh, voted on it. You may remember Lieutenant Colonel Allen West was in attendance. I do. I've spent the, the whole day with him. I uh, had my photo taken. Uh, I think we Lieutenant actually came Colonel. here and actually did a show in the morning on Super Talk. I actually, think that is well. right. Um, and so uh, the Convention of States, before we discuss exactly what that is, what that means, what we're trying to do here, Mississippi, as I recall, 
Representative Eubanks signed on uh, to the balanced budget, the fiscal restraint right. aspect, but not the term limits. Right. There were three. There were three uh, calls basically built into that resolution. Yep. And there were a whole lot of folks that that was the headwind we were facing in the Mississippi legislature was people didn't want term limits. Yeah. Uh, this will be for members of Congress, by the way. It'll be for members of Congress, mm-hmm. but but uh, if you if you look back at at Mississippi's history, we tend to get people, and they get in there, and they stay there forever. Certainly, yeah, they do. <laughs> and, and so, both in Jackson and Washington. Yeah, well, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so, in in order to in order to basically get that over the finish line and to join the 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 call with the other states around the country, because you know you have to reach 34 states right. to, uh, on a call in order to actually call a convention. The agreement was made that look, should we get to the point to where we have enough states to have a convention the whatever delegates or representatives we send from mississippi they would stay out of the talks on term limits right and so we we were able to successfully get it passed and um and so yeah that that was uh and it's ironic too because when i went to the simulated convention a few weeks back i was the chairman of term limits and Hmm. <laughs> that is very ironic, given that you represent a state that uh, didn't sign on to that, uh, that right. part of the effort. Uh, and so, John, uh, explain this to us. As I recall, there are some limits in our Constitution about the issues that can be held. And you have to have specific issues. You can't just say, let's have a convention and just remake the country, for well, example. Well, the best way to call a convention is to have defined topics. Okay. I don't think there is actually a restriction. Okay. But they wanted to do that and keep it, you know, on point. And they had instead of doing one a topic, which is has been done before, there have been calls for conventions and when they do one topic, it doesn't get enough support. Right. So this current call for a convention, they decided to combine three very popular ideas fiscal responsibility, term limits except for Mississippi, yep. and um, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. So those are the three areas that we are calling a convention for. Anything outside of those would not be discussed or you know proposed. So that's a way of keeping it contained and safe in a way. Yep. Um, I think currently there's a new thing that the governor of California wants to call an <laughs> Article II convention for gun rights. That's fine. You can do that. Hmm. But it's probably not going to be very popular, so I doubt he will get much support. These uh, three that uh, Convention of States have chosen are supermajority popular in America with the people. Okay, I think it's also important to point out, Gerard, that the the, the hurdle to get there is monumental, but to even ratify it is even more monumental. The, the process is exactly the same as it currently exists for Congress to propose an amendment. You think back where, you know, we gave women the right to vote or we made slavery, you know, we got rid of slavery in America. We had amendments that Congress proposed and it had to go back to all the state legislatures to be ratified. So even if you had something go off the rail, kind of like the, you know, the naysayers would try to tell you is going to happen, there's still a there's still a, a, a firewall and a safety check because it's got to go back and pass um, by 38. I mean, 75 percent. Yeah. Three, three quarters. Yeah. 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 So I, I believe it's two thirds to get the convention underway and then three quarters. Right. To actually ratify. 
right. is the threshold, which uh, was, I think, wise on the part of our founders. Oh, yeah. You want it to be high. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, any anybody with a, a agenda and a whole lot of money might be able to, to to circumvent things. But it was also it was also kind of the hail mary. It was the it was the the last ditch effort that our founding fathers were wise enough to put into the Constitution to say at some point Congress will get to the place where it is unwilling or unable to regulate itself, where they're unwilling to do the hard thing or the right thing for America or only act in their own best interest yeah. for the next re-election cycle. And at some point, it may be necessary for states to rise up and say, okay, well, we can take the issue into our own hands, and we can follow the same process that, that Congress follows, and we can propose amendments uh, that limit or at least right the ship. Sure. So how long has this specific effort been underway? I mean, just with respect to the issues that we're trying to address. We just had our 10-year anniversary. Okay. And it also just got uh, 2,500,000 signatures at about the same time. So it's a, it is a slow process, and there's a lot of talk about how long will it take to get to the next stage, which would be, would be calling a convention. No one really knows. I mean, we hope, because there are a number of states that have, say, one house already Yep. you know, on board. So we need just the other half. You would think those might not take long. We actually have another state. I forget which one it is. It's ratified, but they have then a bit of legislation that says you can't call a convention of states. So mm. we have to, it. Hmm. It seems unconstitutional. I think it will end up being struck down, and convention of states will hopefully prevail. That would be the twentieth state. But it's it's a slog. It's a, it's a long way. I, I'm hoping it's within the next. Three to five years? Really? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Think, I think the worst that our nation, hmm. the worst state our nation gets in, the more people will be aware. That, you know, people want to have hope. You want to believe that that our, our our best days aren't behind us, and and it's hard to have hope when you look at the the swamp in D.C. and you see the level of of selling out of our country, uh, the, the unwillingness to actually say, well, you know what, we can't run a 30 plus trillion dollar deficit and keep printing money and and have a hundred to 200 trillion dollars in unfunded you know liabilities it someday the the piper's got to get paid you can't kick the can forever and and hopefully before that day comes i think i think the vast majority of americans will say we've got to do something they're already saying it and and, and the beautiful thing about an article 5 convention is it it does give hope where there seems to be no hope for the the average American for the states, um, and and I think that uh, it's sad to say it, but the worse we get, the state we get in as a nation, the more relevant an Article Five convention becomes, um, because you, you can't expect the people that are making the rules to rule themselves. Nobody wants to. You know, you've got so many people there that can constitute the swamp in D.C. that have been there for fifty, forty, thirty years. They're never going to put limits on themselves. So, so at some point, um, it may be necessary for the, the people and the states to rise up and to right the ship. Yeah, um, we're just about at a break. And if you guys can hang around, we'll continue oh, the discussion into the next um, uh, segment. But I, I, have, uh, I don't have quite as optimistic a view on that. Um, uh, I, I wrote an article in support of this, so clearly I'd, right. I'm on board with it. And I'd, I'd like to think that article – I know it was read a lot by the legislature. I'd like to think that article did have some degree of an influence that we got at least partially on board 
with it. I knew the term limits would be a heavy lift, but I have a different take on on uh, than you do, Representative Eubanks, on on your belief as to why this will become more important, more supported by the electorate. And I'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Love to hear. And we'll have that discussion. Coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone. Middays from the Element Well Studio. We're chatting with Representative Dan Eubanks and also uh, John Armstrong, legislative liaison for the Convention of States. So you were you were making the point, and I think it's a right. it's a valid point, and it's a, it's a logical point that where you really see folks get behind uh, such an effort is when they're they just look at Congress and say Congress is dysfunctional. It's ineffective. Not really. Uh, advancing the ball here uh, to the for the betterment of the country, and it's time for for us as the people through this convention of states process to exert some some pressure and to get some things done. Right. And so I totally agree with that. The concern I have, and it's something we've talked about on the program many times, is that those of us on the right that that cherish freedom and believe in free markets and limited government. And uh, lower taxes and, and and all that that entails. I think we're losing the messaging war in a big way. And if you talk, I think to the average person out there, they would agree that our thirty-one trillion dollars of debt and our um, we're, we're looking at a two trillion dollar deficit this year. By the way, um, this fiscal year, which ends at the end of next month, I think they would say, well, that's because we don't take enough taxes in. And that's a very, very effective uh, point that they make. And uh, leaders in the Democrat Party really pound that drum. I pay a lot of attention to that, and I I see reaction from the the average person in this narrative that, well, the reason we're running up these huge deficits is because Trump gave tax cuts to his wealthy buddies and corporations. That, I think, is the prevailing attitude. Uh, in the country, when you start talking about, it, let's look at the convention, for example, which calls for uh, fiscal restraint, balancing the budget. Right. I think that's a noble <clears throat> cause, and I think it's something that a lot of people could get behind. 
But here's what's missing. You, you look at the RNC debate last week, virtually every candidate up there said, we got to stop all the radical spending. Okay, specifically, what do you want to stop? Because they'll say, we can't touch Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Okay, right. you can't do anything about debt interest. Well, that's 70% of out, outflows. We can't touch the military. In fact, we got to raise that. Well, now we're at 85%. So you're dealing with about 12 to 15%, which is all the rest of government. Well, if you got rid of every bit of that, you still have a trillion and a half dollar deficit. If you got rid of all the military, all discretionary spending, all the government complex outside of mandatory spending, you still have a trillion dollar deficit. That's where we are. So now you're talking about, well, let's go reduce benefits uh, being paid out by Social Security and Medicare. Don't touch that. Right. That's why I think this is a problem. We, we've gotten so upside down, and we've kicked this can down the road for so long, nobody will offer any, here are my plans to balance the budget. Here's what that budget looks like. All they say is, we got to cut spending. But nobody said, here's my budget. Right. Well, you that's know, balanced. But, you know, if you think about it, every family, every individual that's listening right now, they live within a budget. Right. And, and, if, and if they get their hours cut and their budget goes down, they have to go in and triage what's got to get cut. No doubt. And, and, and so if you limit how much Congress can spend, they're going to go through and they're going to cut out a bunch of stuff. And you're going to have to take a good hard look and triage what's really necessary. I mean, we're, we're already into the Ukraine for $150 billion. You know, we, 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 have, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars on all this gender equity transgender stuff in the last budget that got passed back in in november uh billions of dollars on green there was a hundred plus million dollars in in the budget that got passed back in november that was solely for the purpose of figuring out how to tax americans for how many miles they drive not how much gas they buy right. but how many miles they drive at, at some point you will have to say, hey, I can't afford the cable anymore. I'm going to cut it. You know, We can't afford to go out and eat every night. We'll cut it because this is what we bring in and this is what we can spend. And the federal government, as long as they have the ability to use the American people as an ATM or the ability to go out and print money whenever they need it, they will never limit themselves. And so I agree with you. I mean – there are core functions of government, and there are, a, you know, there are obligations that we have as a nation that we have to – I think we do have to take care of the elderly with Social Security. I think we do need a, a national defense. But at some point, we have to also say, well, of that $800 billion that was set up for our national defense, how much is it defending somebody else's border? And we're letting people pour into our border, and how much is that costing the country in, in un, unintended expenses, you know? You don't just come into the country and it doesn't cost us on some fiscal level. And so, I mean, yeah, it, it, it sounds kind of pie in the sky, but if you can say, no, this is, we are going to – the state of Mississippi has a balanced budget. Right. Um, and we, we put so much away each year in a rainy day fund, and we, you know, we can't borrow more than we retire. And we, we manage our household a lot better than the federal government by far. And, and so if, if we never do anything to constrain, then all we got is business as usual. It's, it's the old adage, you know, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. If we keep doing business as usual, we will continue to print money at an unbreakable pace and then the problem is going to be a whole lot a whole lot more detrimental down the road and and when the dollar ceases to be the world 
reserve currency, which it's starting to look like that's happening with the BRIC nations and everybody else, we, we've got to get our house in order. We've got to restore confidence in the dollar, in our nation, and you don't do that by running up more mm-hmm. debt. No, I hear you, and I, I'm on board with all that. All I'm saying is that I haven't heard a Republican yet that says, yeah, we got to do something about mandatory spending that's running for president. The right. only person that's really been any to any degree vocal about it is Rick Scott. Yeah. Um, and uh, to some extent, um, John Cornyn said a little bit about it. Um, and the senator, his name escapes me right now, from Wisconsin, he, he said something as well. But I mean, very tacitly touched on it. Donald Trump said, can't touch it. Okay, well, then we could get rid of the whole rest of government, and we still got a massive deficit. I mean, that's where we are. We still have a $400 billion deficit. If we got rid of the entire Department of Defense, not just cut out the wasteful spending, I mean just no more Defense Department. But how much of that deficit is made up of a lot of this other garbage that isn't, you know, it depends on where people fall on the side of where how involved we should be in Ukraine. I personally feel like it should be humanitarian, but we are we are headed down a road and playing chicken with Chinese and the and the Russians, and we're leaving our own border wide open. But we're sending I'm with hundreds of billions of dollars to the Ukraine. That's part of the deficit. It's one percent. Yes. is what it amounts to. The um, where's the other? Where are we going to get the other part of it? I mean, that's the problem. Well, it's 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 like a it's, you know a small leak can sink a big ship. It's eight percent of the deficit. It's one percent of spending. The math, the math, right. the way it works out. Well, we're talking, talking about, about let's just eliminating the deficit. So eight okay. percent. If if you keep ratcheting up and finding those things like that. <clears throat> You're going to get to 50. You may not get all the way there, but there's got to be a process. And I know even in the discussions at the simulated convention on that that particular call, it it always came with a phase-in period. Because you can't just cold turkey. No, like, sure, oh, we're, you can't. We're just going to cut it off. You know, you've got to be able to budget. And when we were looking at getting rid of the income tax here in Mississippi, several of the plans that were floated were, it, yeah, I mean, even the in. current one we have is a phase-in, yeah. because you don't want to shock the system and not be able to provide. Just, just keep in mind, while you're doing that, Social Security and Medicare keep going up. Yeah. So you're just, you're just plugging one hole and, and busting out another one. But you so. got to be hoping that the economy is also growing and revenues will increase. And and we know that the, that the less money you, you take from people, because the government has they, nothing they to give away. Have. It doesn't first take from somebody else. Yeah, that that money turns over a dozen times. It's going to get taxed a dozen times. And so revenues will increase. And that's part of the reason why all these states have all these surpluses right now, because all of that stimulus money no confused, doubt. and it just turned over and turned over and turned over. I call it helicopter revenue. money. They yeah. just It's going to run out eventually. I quit turning around. And then well, we'll, it's an issue for the state of Mississippi <laughs> that is. we need to be concerned about as well. So, so John... Uh, how optimistic? You said 10 years you think you can get uh, sufficient number of states, which would be 34, to get the convention underway. I think it's – I think it, I'm hoping it's three to five. And I am optimistic, and it's interesting when you're talking about the current Republicans not having answers. Yeah, yeah. I agree. They're part of Washington. Washington is broken. Washington broke itself. Washington likes it that way. Convention of states doesn't always have – answers but we want to change the incentives because washington's incentive is to get money to move around so we can skim off our part yeah i agree and the convention of states is gonna try and think about this anew and come up with different ways to do it so that's that's the part that i find the most optimistic okay well i look forward to uh this thing getting getting some legs and getting underway and getting something on the table and maybe we make some change fantastic yeah 
Appreciate it. Representative Dan Eubanks and John Armstrong talking about the Convention of States. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. With Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Element Well Studio. Thomas and Greenwood asks a question. What's your answer on the budget? We have to start somewhere. Can't just say no, that won't work. I totally agree with you, uh, Thomas, and I don't, I don't mean to uh, to give that impression. That, and so I need to probably clarify that. I, I just believe it's necessary to uh, to dissect the math at a detailed level. I don't think the average person, I don't think the people in Congress, honestly, you'd you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a significant number of people in the Congress that, like, have the U.S. budget on the tip of their tongues. I believe they should, at least, at least in the high category level. Not not down to the detail line item level. My gosh, the budget you've seen it before, right? The you've seen photos or video or images of the the printed budget. It's boxes. It's bankers' boxes full of documents, like feet of documents. That's the budget. But at the highest level, if you just looked at a pie chart, where does the money go by major category? Yeah, they should know that, in my opinion. And all those candidates for president on the stage, they ought to have that committed to memory, where they could just spout it off. I know how much we spend on mandatory, on discretionary. Then within mandatory, it's Social Security is this much, Medicare is this much, Medicaid's that much. They ought to have that committed to memory. The other programs that are mandatory, established by statute, debt interest, how much is that? And then you look at the discretionary categories. And it's defense. And then it's all the other functions of government that comprise the discretionary category. And how much was our discretionary spending last year? How much was our mandatory spending? Yeah, I believe they ought to all know that. And so I'm just going through the math. I, I agree. we got to start somewhere, Thomas. And I, and I don't mean to appear to be confrontational representative Eubanks on that. I'm with him. Where I think we got to start is by commissioning some people who have expertise in reviewing 
budgets at a line-item level, every department within the federal government, every object of spending, and someone would just have to make a call. This is unnecessary, because the problem is one person's wasteful spending is another person's, oh, this is, this is just necessary. we got to have this. We can't do without it. And that's why we're $31 trillion in debt. The, um, some of the stuff that just sounds crazy to me and you that we say, what the heck are we spending money on that for? A person on the other side would say, oh, that's a gotta have. We can't get rid of that. That's totally necessary. It's a requirement. The country can't make it without that. The Ukraine spending is the one that comes up all the time, right? So you probably noticed last week during the debate, only one person of the eight said we should quit sending money to Ukraine. One person. DeSantis looked around. I don't know if you guys saw that. He looked to his left and his right to see who was raising their hand when that question was asked by the moderators. Should we discontinue funding, sending funding to Ukraine? And he kind of uh, kind of halfway <laughs> raised his hand. And when he was asked about it, he said, I just think that uh, EU and, and uh, the Western nations in Europe should equal our investment. Well, that makes sense. That And Trump pointed this out a lot, that we are shouldering the expense of defending the world, honestly, keeping it intact against the bad guys who want to blow the whole dang planet up. You're not paying your fair share, Europe. I agree. He's absolutely right about that. But I don't know... You know, what sort of leverage we have, that's where it gets complicated. What kind of leverage could we apply and pressure to cause them to pick up their share of the tab? um, That gets a little dicey, no doubt about it. But what I'd like to see happen, Thomas, is, again, a, a complete, thorough review and report, and it'd take a little while, of everything that just at least at a minimum, appears to be frivolous and inconsistent with the constitutionally appropriate functions of government. Again, if you put up people to that task, if you establish such a task force, Blue Ribbon Committee, whatever you want to call it, commission, and and if it were divided in composition between folks on the left and folks on the right, I'd argue you'd see no congruence on what they deem to be wasteful, frivolous, abusive. I pointed out a few weeks ago, you guys may remember, that the General Accounting Office, why we ought to just start here. How about this? The General Accounting Office says that last year, the federal government made $270 billion of improper payments. That's not waste, fraud, and abuse. That's just incompetence. At a minimum, we ought to be able to address that. And honestly, the most effective approach to addressing that problem, the problem of improper payments, is automation. 
It's, auto, it's sophisticated, automated tools that would prevent that, such as paying out earned income tax credits to bogus tax returns, bogus tax filers, or people that have multiple names, multiple ad- addresses on file with the IRS, not properly vetted, and they go file tax returns, bogus tax returns, and the IRS sends them a check. It's incredible that our, our systems are that bad. And the Democrats' approach to uh, addressing the improper payments problem is not to even address it. They, don't, they want to look the other way on that. What they want to do is put 87,000 IRS agents out there to go out and, and harass taxpayers who do pay. That's their idea. Why don't we do that audit at the state level to usher in income tax elimination? Because we certainly could, Thomas, but we're, we're talking about a, a completely different model with respect to the dollar amount of that. Could the legislature go hire third parties to... It would not be something that the Department of Audit would do. It would need to be, in my view, third parties... Sure, but they come back with a report, and it's it's subjective. You don't need to spend money on this. And then somebody else says, yeah, we do. That's the problem. So how do you get congruence on that such that laws get changed? We don't spend money on that anymore. I mean, the state has a little different issue. It's produced a $1.3 billion surplus this year. Unexpected. That's a big start on that. Much as I want to eliminate the income taxes in the state of Mississippi, to be honest with you, that's nothing compared to what that federal tax bite is. My bigger concern, and I'm still an advocate for meaningful tax reform in the state of Mississippi, but that's nothing compared to the expiration of these Trump tax cuts at the end of 25 that nobody seems to want to talk about. Nothing compared to that. Your tax bill's going up. At the um, after 2025, and there's going to be a war in Congress. Mark my word on this. In the next term, after the president is seated, about the Trump tax cuts expiring. My hope is that Republicans are in concert and extending those provisions. The Democrats, of course, they loathe that bill, and they blame our deficits 100% on the Trump tax cuts. They say it every day. It's complete horse hockey. It, it is not rooted in mathematical fact. Of course, most of what they say isn't. Make the recommendations binding, says Thomas. No, I wouldn't support that. I wouldn't support, I mean, only if the legislature passed a law that said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to farm this out to a third party, and whatever they say is what we're going to do. I mean, that's what you want, Thomas? I don't know about that, man. Well, let's just have third-party consultants. We don't, need, we don't need a House and a Senate and a governor anymore. Let's just let third parties, consultants, run the state. I don't know if that makes sense. Because, again, their recommendations are they're subjective. Just, yeah, I think this is... Unnecessary. That's different than improper payments, though, at the federal level. Coming right back. 
It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Well, we were talking earlier about the drawing straws method of breaking a tie in elections in Mississippi on the ceasefire text line. Let's all go have a party and tailgate and everything. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Scott and Clinton says, I demand a remeasure. (laughs) What'd you say had to be of conspicuous length is what the law terms. Yeah, Mark Tullis and Bo Eaton had to draw straws. Was it in the last election for House of uh, Representatives? No, I thought it was, was fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Yeah. yeah. I think they should put the straws in a whiskey flask and have the drawing at Highland Mile, says Robert and Brandon. <laughs> Dan in Hattiesburg just sent a text, a screenshot. Looks like yeah, a text. Mercury opinion in the governor's election. Who do you plan on voting for? One Reeves, two Presley, three someone else, four not sure, five not voting. Text stop to quit. How about that? I'm sure. Ben in Madison says, I fully support legislative term limits. I do, however, wonder what some unintended consequences may arise if it goes through. That being said, I do believe it would be a good thing for the country overall. I agree with you, Ben. I, I have uh, discussed the the risks of that as well, when you start to go a little scorched earth. I'm out of here, I don't care, sort of deal. We saw that with uh, the earmarks that were included in the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill that funds the discretionary functions of government. That passed in December of 22. It did require... Republicans to get on board in the Senate because you got to have 60 votes. And so I believe 17 or 18 Republicans diverted with uh, their Republican counterparts, supported the measure, and there were a number of earmarks in the in of the top 10 in terms of value, dollar value of earmarks. The top four were Republicans. Richard Shelby from next door Alabama, the senator, said, I'm out of here, I don't care. That's the scorched earth risk that you have. I guess the other question is, why do we keep voting for them? Why do the same people that clamor for term limits also vote for like the person they like a lot of times over and over again? Why can't we just do it at the ballot box? Interesting. And I know there's lots of thoughts on that, but I hear you, Ben. Because virtue signaling is not just a leftist problem. That's true. you got a lot of people that would love for, I don't know, their friends on social media or us here on the show, if they send it in on the text line, they would love to be perceived as a bastion of conservatism. Right. 
But if their buddy was running as a Democrat, they'd vote for their buddy. I think that's right. I, I totally agree with you. Bit of a conflict. C.J. from Madison says, Trump is saying can't touch Social Security and Medicare because he's trying to win the next election. Do you remember when he was in office and got backlash for saying reroute funds? think that was 2019. I personally think he knows spending is a problem. Oh, I think they all know it, C.J., I, honestly. I, I don't think that's a question. Hey, is spending a problem? Every single one of them, on the, certainly on the Republican side, would affirm that on the Democrat side, they'd say it's a revenue problem. We got to have more revenue. We got to have more taxes. That's, that would be their approach. In fact, they say it on a daily basis. I, I read the, the tweets uh, from many of those who call for higher taxes. Seems like it's every day to me. So it's not that I don't think Trump knows it's a problem. I agree he wants to get reelected, but. He's not going to make any move if he if he is reelected. I just don't see him getting in office and say, "Hey guys, we got to do something about this Social Security and Medicare. It's out of control. It's unsustainable. It's going broke. It's on a a path to collapse." I just don't see him doing that. I know. I agree. He probably knows it's a problem. It is what's driving, honestly, our deficits more than anything else just in terms of the dollar value of the increases, which are on autopilot. It's the same thing with PERS and the automatic cost of living adjustment, the so-called 13th check. It doesn't matter what inflation is, baby, that thing's going out no matter what, 3% a year compounded. Whether your cost of living went up or whether the CPI increased year over year, irrelevant. You're getting this additional money, and that's why PERS is looking at a $20 billion unfunded liability in in so-called red flag status. That's the way the actuaries describe it. Mose asked an interesting question about what kind of tax increases we would need to uh, at least start covering up the deficit. I'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Fox News, Super Talk News, up next. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone, it is Middays. We're in the Element Well studio on this hump day. So, uh, yeah, so it's a good question that uh, Mose asked about, uh, and I'll go through it here for you. Uh, if I can pull it up here, give me one second. Sorry about that. Where'd you go, Mose? Oh, okay. You sent another 
uh, texting. That's fine. Uh, for argument's sake, let's assume tax increases with no cuts in spending are the only tool available to cover the deficit and pay off the debt. What would the tax rate have to be to pay off the debt at a rate of $1 trillion a year? Okay, well, a lot of assumptions you'd have to make, Mo. It's a good question, though. Uh, assume that the deficit continues annually at the present rate. Roughly $2 trillion. I just checked on that this morning. I, I said $2 trillion. You guys may recall a few weeks ago, this was after we got data for July that showed that we were sitting at $1.6 trillion in terms of the deficit for fiscal year 2023. That with two months remaining in the year, August and September. Federal government's fiscal year uh, is September 30th, the ending date for the fiscal year. So two months remaining, sitting at 1.6. I just extrapolated and said, yeah, based on historical collections and spending, we're going to come in at about $2 trillion. It turns out I was off by $100 billion. Looks like it's going to come in at $1.9 trillion. Aren't you happy? It's only $1.9 trillion. But we still don't have the final data. That's just the latest projection from the CBO. All right, so let's just assume we sit at $2 trillion. And we got um, we got thirty one trillion in debt. So if we paid off debt, as Mo suggests, at the rate of one trillion a year, we have to first balance the budget so we don't add any more debt to it. So that's a two trillion dollar shortfall. If we just did it through taxes, as Moses suggesting here, good exercise. Then you need a trillion additionally to retire debt in that amount on an annual basis. So in other words, you'd have to have three trillion more of revenue. All right. Right now we collect between corporate income taxes and individual income taxes. We collect about $2.2 trillion. All right. Then we got Social Security and Medicare taxes. Those are separate. That comes in just under $2 trillion. So if you are following me there, Mose, and, and others, and hope you are, essentially what it means is that if we didn't touch Social Security and Medicare taxes and we relied on only income taxes to cover the shortfall of $2 trillion a year, plus we collect an additional trillion to pay down on the debt, that, that comes in to needing uh, about, based on the, the two added together, you'd have to more than double the income taxes we currently pay. Double. Over a 100% increase, actually, to get to that point where you're covering the deficit and you're retiring a trillion dollars of debt. Just doubling it would produce a 300 billion-dollar surplus that you could apply to the debt. But if your goal, as most suggest, is a trillion, uh, 
you got to do more than just double. You got to be in about 130 percent to get to that point. So just imagine, take your income taxes right now, you pay the federal government, and increase those by 130%. That's what you'd have to pay. Now, of course, the left wouldn't want you to do that. They want all that to be covered by those dirty, greedy, rich people. The only problem is, you'd have to take all their money and then some. And you still couldn't get to where they want you to be. In fact, this is kind of interesting. If you took 100% of the adjusted gross income of the top 1%, just the top 1%, which is 1,500,000 people in this country of 330 million. Think about that. 1,500,000 people have an income that places them in the top 1%. You take all their adjusted gross income, which is $2.8 trillion, take it all. They're they're already paying an average uh, tax rate of uh, their income is sitting at 26%, average tax rate. So just take it all. You still have a deficit. Take 100%. Bump that up to 100%. From 26% to 100%. Still have a deficit. That's the math, the kooky left, who just has so many people in this country believing that, oh yeah, we just went and got more money out of those rich people. That fixed everything. And the math just doesn't add up. Just doesn't. So I apologize for going through kind of a wonky exercise there, but that's a good question, Mose, and and I think it's something that should be promoted a bit more. That's great, folks, but there ain't enough money. It's it's the old Margaret Thatcher. Eventually you run out of other people's money. Well, that's what this exercise proves. What would you say? Larry and Maya says, what if you stop sending refunds to those who even don't pay taxes? Well, that's what we were talking about earlier, Larry. Uh, there's improper payments, uh, and a lot of those improper payments are people who are fraudulently sending in tax returns, filing tax returns, receiving checks from the IRS through earned income tax credits. There's child tax credits as well that they're not, they don't qualify for, but the IRS still sends them money. If we stop the EITC program, Larry, it's $8 billion. It's not that much. I'm all for it, but it's $8 billion. It's less than petty cash. It's less than a fraction of petty cash. Again, unless you're talking in trillions, you're not really changing anything. And that, that was the point I was trying to make. It's not that I oppose flushing all that crap out. I totally do. And I would completely support an independent organization doing a deep dive into every dime spent. And there have been candidates that have proposed that, and then they never act on it. I'm all for that. And to expose that. And there, what was the, um, was he a senator from Oklahoma that used to, he retired, I want to say he then passed away, was a physician. And he used to publish an annual report just pointing out all the crazy spending 
in the federal government. One I remember was money we were sending to to China to coach or Japan to coach prostitutes on drinking, something crazy like that. Who who could forget uh, Rhino the uh, study of Remember the exotic tropical fish, kind of looks like a lionfish or something like that, and it's on treadmills. Remember that crazy crap stuff like that. Talking about Tom Coburn. That's it. Yeah, he published a report annually that, that just would expose all this nuttiness. I have a photo of um, the guy who headed the GAO itself during Obama's term. They'd have an annual convention out in Las Vegas. And I, I did some research on that. They would have like $16 muffins for their continental breakfast. And he actually did a selfie of himself that went viral um, sitting in a tub in some luxurious suite in a Las Vegas hotel, the window in the background. He's overlooking Vegas. And he's got a, he's sitting in the tub, his shirt's off, of course, um, and he's holding up a a, uh, a glass of champagne. This is a GAO guy. <laughs> but yeah, I'm all for that, Larry. There's all kinds of stuff like that. I'm for the 270 billion of of uh, improper payments. That just seems like shooting fish in a barrel to me. But it's complicated, and the bad guys that work the system to get these payments from the federal government. A lot of that, as you recall, Larry, I talked about when we spoke. Um, over in Smith County at the Raleigh Courthouse there. It, improper payments in Medicaid. $80 billion a year. $80 billion. So it's not that we don't know about this. It's just, okay, how do you fix it? We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio on the ceasefire text line. Casey says, party has to get behind voting incumbents out of office instead of implementing term limits. I think I understood that correctly uh, from her. Yeah, I I agree, and I I would also agree, Casey, I think this may be what you're pointing out, that uh, our party, the Republican Party, just seems to be all in for incumbents no matter what. Uh, I know that, for example, as it pertains to the United States Senate, the Republican Senate Re-election Committee, or whatever the heck it's called, National Senate, NSRC, right, is what I'm thinking of, I believe is the acronym for the organization that is usually controlled by the leader in the Senate, whether it's majority or minority, uh, the Republican leader, I should say. And they raise money. I mean, it's a big pack. And they make it very clear, we only support incumbents. If, it, if there's a race that involves an incumbent, that's the only one we were supporting. I mean, but I'm, that's the whole chicken and the egg argument. Because you, you have a chunk of money that you want to invest wisely in a political campaign. 
incumbents win a majority of the time, so you want to spend your money wisely on a winner. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? It's self What came first, the, the donations to the winners or the winners being incumbents? I, I agree. And that's, it's, it's kind of a begetting itself sort of situation. I just feel like if Jesus Christ filed to challenge an incumbent, uh, the NSRC would support the incumbent. Um, they, they make that very clear. And I do think that's an issue. I, re- I really do. If the government taxed more, we would just spend more, so we would have to start to discipline our spending. And, and I agree. I, I would just point out that the, the vast majority of that increase in spending is on autopilot and through these statutory programs. That, that's, the, that's the key point, really, I'm trying to make here, is that I agree that we need to discipline our spending, but the Republicans have admitted we can only touch this part and that's amounts to about $800 billion in a $2 trillion deficit. So what's your plan, Republicans, for the other $1.2 trillion? That's my, that's my point. And they'll, they won't say anything. Well, we can't cut defense. Can't cut all this mandatory spending. I don't know. I just, I've heard nothing, nothing substantive on that. How about every time they talk about cutting Social Security or Medicare, they cut politicians paid too? May not help, but sure would make a lot of people feel better. Well, that's all it would do is make people feel better because that, of course, doesn't amount to anything. And I'm not suggesting cutting Social Security or Medicare. And I, I've made that clear that that's not fair, certainly to current beneficiaries or anybody that's within striking distance of retiring. I, I totally oppose that. But some sort of structural change, like we're facing now with PERS, has got to occur because it's on a path to insolvency, and it is what's driving up our deficit and our debt. That's just a fact. Uh, uh, so here we go, Mike in Gulfport. You know, it's odd we get a new senator or representative every now and then because they promise to end waste and corruption. Then they get worried about getting reelected and don't do what got them there, and we don't unelect them. Yeah, I agree, Mike. It's the point we made on the program is that we expect them to go up there and get our fair share, send it back home, 100 on the Senate, 435 on the House, 535 people all trying to eat out of the same trough. Next thing you know, you got $31 trillion in debt. <laughs> No, you can't have that money, but my rep could get it for me sort of deal. We got Brandon Presley running around bragging about rural broadband. Let's just be honest. All we did was throw that on the debt of the country. Got rural broadband, that's great. But all we did was add that to the debt. Someone asked a question. I'm looking for it, uh, Rhino, that was was a relevant, valid question about, um, yeah, Mike from Madison. Why did Congress make the Trump tax cuts for corporations permanent but made the one for individuals have a sunset date? Excellent question, Mike. And I absolutely can answer that. And uh, it's something you've heard us talk about a lot. It all comes down to the 60 votes in the Senate. This is all about the filibuster-proof Senate. So there is a process. It's called the Bird Rule. Name for Senator Byrd from West Virginia, I think. And was it Robert Byrd from West Virginia? 
retired a long time ago. Nonetheless, it's made for him, and it is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what this allows it, the bird rule? It was a measure that the Congress passed. It allows passing certain legislation that only deals with budgetary matters, revenue spending, with a simple majority in the Senate. But it, there's constrictions on it. There's limits. And it has to be scored by the CBO and then tendered to the parliamentarian of the Senate. And the parliamentarian then rules, yes or no, this can be passed with a simple majority through the reconciliation process. It's what it's literally called. And so what they did to make the numbers work, Mike, is they said, okay, and remember, all scoring on all these these fiscal bills, always 10 years. All these figures you always hear these politicians talk about, always 10 years. They never talk about annual figures, like the Trump tax cuts are going to run the deficit up by $2 trillion, And they want to tell you that that's for one year. It's not. The CBO scored the Trump tax cuts to add, by the way, $1.5 trillion, not two, to the deficit over 10 years. Not one. All scoring, 10 years. So when they score these bills to make it fit within the reconciliation rules, they'll put sunset dates on them because the CBO can't score the possibility that they might be extended. The same thing happened in the Inflation Reduction Act. So, for example, the enhanced Obamacare subsidies, the health care aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act, those expire in five years. They're not permanent. Now, typically, when it's a spending matter, they just get automatically extended. Nobody votes against that, typically. But in the case of, of taxes, yeah, that's a big old fight. It was the same thing when Obama was in office with the Bush, so-called Bush tax cuts. Those were not permanent. Those had expiration dates. Remember, he lowered taxes in the wake of 9-11 to stimulate the economy. And so that's why they did it that way. And, and what the Republicans decided, right or wrong, was, well, let's make the corporate tax cuts permanent, but let's sunset the individual. They, they saw that as an opportunity to, uh, they thought that would be more stimulative. And I get it to corporations. You got this comfort and confidence knowing this is your tax rate permanently. Now, every day the Democrats come up and say, we got to tax the corporations more. But remember, they'd have to go get 60 votes out of the Senate to overturn that, to repeal that. S- same sort of deal. Uh, but that's why. It's all about making the stuff work in the rules of reconciliation. It kind of sounds it's crazy. it's also a bit of politics. Yeah, it is. People vote, corporations don't. So if that's true. you want to continue getting the tax cuts, you have to vote Republican so that they can enable the continuation of the individual tax cuts. Yeah. Uh, on the ceasefire tax line, how much do the illegals cost our country? They get government payments. They do. Uh, they suck up government services for free. I don't know what the figure is. I mean, it's substantial. It's not enough to cure the deficit. Am I for uh, eliminating that and shutting the borders down? Absolutely. And I get it. Again, I'm just pointing out, you get rid of every bit of that, plus the entire military. I mean, no more military. No more defense. No more Army. No more Navy. No no more Air Force. No more Marines. Get rid of all that. Get rid of the DOGA, the a, the EPA, the DOE, uh, what was it, the CMS, the, the IRS. 
the Social Security Administration. Get rid of every bit of that. You still have a $400 billion deficit. That's, I'm, I'm trying to point out just how gigantic and overwhelming the problem is. Get rid of every bit of it. Every bit, every dime. Not just cut the waste, the fraud, the abuse. I mean eliminate it totally. We still are upside down. According to FAIR, as of the start of 2023, the gross negative economic impact economic impact of Ill- illegal immigration is $182 billion offset by tax revenue paid by illegal aliens at just under $32 billion, which comes to a cost to the federal government of $150 billion. I mean, it's, it's not pocket change, I agree. And the, by the way, that's figured into that 15% of discretionary spending, those costs, because those are being borne by those agencies. Uh, well, we're taking a break right here, half an hour left, having a, a rather wonky fiscal discussion. Coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Rock by T-Rex. <laughs> so on the ceasefire text line, so who the hell do we owe all this debt to? Just say we are resetting to zero. Well, uh, yeah, I wish we could do that. That's Darren and Jackson. Uh, it, it usually comes as a surprise whenever I go through this uh, discussion of who do we owe. And, and there's two major categories. There's what's called intragovernmental holdings. That just means debt that is uh, owed to the Treasury by federal agencies. They've borrowed money from the Treasury. And then there's debt held by the public. So the public would be individuals that buy, let's say, Treasury bonds, bills, notes. It would be banks, investors, foreign governments, all of that would be included in the debt held by the public category. Where it sits right now is about, of the 32 roughly trillion dollars of total outstanding debt, national debt, roughly 7 trillion of that 32 trillion is intragovernmental, intragovernmental, roughly 32 uh, pardon me, 25, 25 trillion is held by the public, meaning investors, foreign nations, financial institutions, etc., and the Fed. So when you hear about when you hear about the Fed printing money, for example, what really happens there is the printing press is printed on behalf of the Federal Reserve. It's kind of crazy. 
ordered by the Federal Reserve to the Treasury to print it, and then the Fed buys it, if that makes any sense. So then the Treasury now owes the Fed. Crazy. So if you look at this, this is something else that shot. By the way, the, the largest holder of debt is Social Security. It gets paid, redeemed every single day by law, surpluses through the years accumulating Social Security. That's just more money coming in from people working, paying their Social Security taxes, then going out to people receiving benefits under the Social Security program. If that generates a surplus by law, that literally has to be loaned to the federal government, and the federal government pays interest on those loans. Those There's special bonds called S-bonds, and then the Social Security receives that interest, helps cover benefits, and then they redeem them. They have terms on them, and whenever those things expire and term out, they redeem the principal. So it's about $2.2 trillion, by the way. And then the military uh, has about a, a trillion and a half. There's some Medicare supplementary medical insurance trust fund, et cetera, et cetera. So all that's in that intragovernmental debt category. But the public, which includes domestic and foreign investors and then foreign countries, well, a lot of people think, well, we owe that money to China. China, of the $32 trillion, we owe China $870 billion. We owe Japan more than we do China. We owe Brazil $230 billion because they buy U.S. treasuries as an investment. We owe the United Kingdom $645 they loan us money. We pay them interest in principle on that. So you never hear Japan. It's always China. Because I think the average person thinks, yeah, we owe that $32 trillion to China. We don't. We owe them $870 billion. And by the way, this is straight from the Treasury Department. I'm not making this data up. So Darren and Jackson says, so the IRS owes me interest on the taxes I overpaid and they used during the year. No, that's not how it works. I suggest you adjust your withholdings there, Darren, um, so that you don't have an overpayment. I suggest that to everybody. Don't let the government use your money. Figure out your withholding so that you square up pretty close to zero when you file your return. That's my recommendation. Uh, And not essentially loan the government money, because you're right. You don't get any, any interest on that. But it's a, it's a monumental problem, is all I'm saying. And, and it get, we talk about it, it's the only point I'm trying to make here, we talk about it, politicians, rather flippantly. we got to stop the radical spending. I, I'm with them. But they won't dig into the details, and they won't discuss just how m- monumental the problem is, if the goal is to balance the budget. And then when you start talking about losing... Um, certain benefits you believe you're getting from the federal government, then it gets really, really dicey. Something else that somebody said earlier, um, I, it's down here somewhere, um, Rhino, you saw no more than 10% of income paid. Somebody texted that in. And, I mean, that, that's noble. That sounds like a great idea. There's, there's two problems with that. First, how do you define income? Uh, the federal government's the IRS is struggling with this minimum tax that went through in the Inflation Reduction Act right now. 
this minimum tax on corporations, they've delayed it because they can't figure out how to implement it? Because it's complicated. And it's all about what's the income to determine whether or not they, um, they hit the billion dollars of income threshold to be ensnared by that rule. And then what's their income for tax purposes? Uh, but the 10%, so this, this may come as a, a bit of a shock. The average income tax rate for all taxpayers in this country is 13.6. 13.6. That, again, according to the Treasury. The top 1% pay double. You never hear the president talk about that. All you ever hear is, well, it's just not fair when the billionaires pay a lower rate than a teacher or a fireman. Well, it's just wrong. That's just factually inaccurate. The top 1%, 26%, all taxpayers combined blended 136 the bottom 50% of the taxpayers in this country pay 2.5% of the total taxes. The top 50% pay 97.5% of the taxes in this country. And I mean, all that's just crazy. Do you think some of your old company software could help balance the budget, says Larry and Mize? Uh, well, it's a little bit bigger a problem than that, Larry, but what is definitely needed, it's no secret, you guys know this, the systems we have to operate these government agencies, like the IRS, which does pay out a lot of improper payments, they're ancient. They're archaic. Now, we did allocate some money for that in the, in the Inflation Reduction Act, and honestly, I'm good with that because I think that would produce a significant return on investment to prevent some of these improper payments. What I'm not on board with is hiring 87,000 shakedown artists a.k.a. IRS agents, to go hassle people and harass people that pay their, their taxes. I'm not for that. But $10 billion to go modernize the systems? I'm all for that. All for that. Definitely need it. By the way, we need that in Medicaid. We need that in state Medicaid. We need it in federal Medicaid. Too, too much bilking of those systems. Medicare, same deal. But again, it's, it's automation. It's digital systems. It's impossible to handle that kind of volume any other way and expect manual inspection and review of all that. That's just not going to happen. That ought to be the focus, in my view, to root out, first and foremost, the $270 billion. And it's probably more than that. That's just what's been somewhat identified through some statistical sampling. It's probably more than that of improper payments. Good grief, the PPP program was riddled with it. All kinds of people making up fictitious companies and crap like that. And once again, because you had humans involved in the oversight of all that, they just make mistakes or don't invest the necessary time to ensure that the applicants are truly eligible. Jeff and Carrollton, I'm not sure if it's true, but I heard FEMA people were staying in 1,500 per night hotels in Hawaii when there was $250 rooms available. Yeah, it is true. And um, there's a lot of stuff that's fishy about what happened in Hawaii. I agree. Uh, I'm not going to put on the tinfoil hat and buy into direct energy weapons and stuff like that, but there seems to be a lot of obfus obfuscation of the truth. Agree. 
but yes, it is true that who's the guy that heads that agency up? He was like giving them holidays and footing them up in luxurious hotels. Yes, yeah, nuts. I agree with that. Thomas and Greenwood says, let's ban payroll deductions. Make everybody pay their taxes in April so they know how much they actually pay. They will get taxes cut. That would absolutely put us on the path to economic collapse, Thomas, because you're trusting that people would actually uh, hold that money back and go put it away somewhere so that they could pay it April, like Social Security and Medicare. It would mean immediately we would default. After year one, I'm telling you, we default on getting uh, Social Security and Medicare payments out. Guarantee. If we expect the people, I'll just go put that away for a year and pay it in April so you'll feel the sting. I get the theory, but in practical application, it just wouldn't work. Final segment coming up on the middays in the Element Well studio, and we got some tickets as well when we come back. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Rhino's got some tickets to give away to Train. Oh, yeah. Grammy Award winning and platinum selling band Train are going to be at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon on September 7th, coming up soon. Tickets for the show are on sale now at the Brandon Amphitheater box office. If you're not around Brandon, you can also buy tickets on Ticketmaster.com. But we're giving you the chance to win a pair of tickets to see Train. All you got to do is be the 18th person to text into the C Spire text line. That number is 601-879-4395. Be the 18th person to text in the key phrase Jupiter, and you'll win a pair of tickets to see Train at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon on September 7th. There you go. So on the C Spire text line, get rid of useless grant programs and stop automatic increases in government spending. All for that. All right, useless grant programs, same problem. One person's useless grant program is another person's absolutely mandatory. Got to have it. Can't live without it. There's no consensus on it. Second, automatic increases, right, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. The rest of the government's not. Military doesn't have automatic increases. All the rest of government doesn't have automatic increases. That's why those are appropriated on an annual basis. What does is mandatory spending because there's cost of living increases. And, of course, Medicare uh, has, has uh, a, a rate schedule and a structure on how it reimburses health care providers. All the automatic aspect of that, which is what's driving the deficit, by the way, in debt. That's all on the mandatory side. Nobody will touch it. And it requires 60 votes in the Senate to do so. And doubtful we would get anything done there, unfortunately. But I, I hear you. And again, I, I'm just pointing out the realities of all this stuff because it's easy to just say, yeah, I'm for cutting spending and I'm for balancing the budget and I'm for fiscal responsibility and I'm for absolutely going through the entire budget with a fine-tooth comb. 
to root out everything that's frivolous. But somebody's got to do some hard... Improper payments is easy, right? That's easy, because certainly everybody can agree. If they're improper, we shouldn't be making them, and we got to fix that. But that requires modernization of our information systems. Uh, but on the uh, on the just, well, what is unnecessary that we don't need, we got to do a good job of selling the other side that, you know, we can do without that. we we got to get the spending under control because what they'll tell you is, nope, we got to tax more. That's the way we have to address this issue. It's never about excess spending, ever. And in fact, Elizabeth Warren, just today, if MAGA Republicans have their way and child care funding falls off a cliff, 3.2 million babies will lose their child care, and a lot of mamas and daddies won't be able to go to work. Congress needs to pass emergency child care funding now. See what I mean? See the and, problem? And it's a perfect example of what you've talked about, how the Democrats are good at selling their points. Just look at the wordsmithing in her statement. Mommies and daddies. She doesn't talk not like that. Not mothers and fathers. Right. Not moms and dads. Mommies and daddies. Good point. They'll lose their child care. I mean, uh, so the government's in the child care business. This essentially is what she's saying. Yeah, they want them to be. There ain't no doubt about that. Rob Reiner, in another example of the most successful presidency in the last 60 years, Joe Biden has dramatically lowered the cost of prescription drugs. In 24, let's choose effectiveness and decency over lying and criminality. <laughs> uh, I didn't get to it today, but I, I did do some research on this prescription drug stuff, which is really just Medicare being a bully and saying, this is what we're going to pay for this. So I didn't realize that there are two broad categories of drugs, small molecule and large molecule. Is this a report I read, and it was, it was from some publication from the pharmaceutical industry. Now I get they're all obviously going to be lobbying on their behalf, but what they said was that we're very close, apparently, to... Um, some breakthroughs, major breakthroughs on, on cancer. There's no secret there. There's been a lot of uh, development and progress there. But they're all of whatever the large, small molecule, I think it's small, if I'm not mistaken, molecule type, that it's crazy, but this prescription drug negotiation deal, it's like got a seven-year time frame for it on the small and a 10-year on the large, and the, and the cancer drugs are small. And therefore, it's less lucrative for the pharmaceutical companies to invest in that, so they're saying we're just not going to make them. Well, that's exactly what was warned about. You've inserted uh, negotiation, which is really just Medicare strong-arming, but what you're giving up is new, innovative cures, because they don't want to let the free market go to work. We had a great show today. We appreciate you tuning in. As always, I'm off tomorrow, headed up to Ole Miss to do a little speaking. Back with you on Friday. Dave's in. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.